We'll be looking at Acts chapter 17 in uh, God's Word this morning. So if you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 17. It's about Paul who is entering into a very pagan world, the Greek city of Athens. And uh, it was pretty messed up. There was a lot of idolatry, a lot of false gods, a lot of false hopes. And so it really discouraged Paul as he entered into this city, as he looked around. And, you know, as we look around, we could get discouraged as well. Our world is a hot mess. Corey Ten Boom, though, said that if you look at the world, you'll get distressed. If you look within, you'll get depressed. But if you look to God, you will find rest. And uh, we desperately need rest. We need to be at rest. Acts 17, when Paul was waiting for them, them being Timothy and Silas, when he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul wanted to offer them great hope, the hope that they could only find in Jesus Christ, and he was successful in doing so. How can we, like Paul, be Givers and dispensers of God's hope. How can we be hope givers? And that's the theme of our message this morning as we live in a messed up world filled with a lot of hopelessness, especially during this time. How can we be hope givers? Let's look at Paul's example. First, we notice from Acts 17 that hope givers prepare themselves for mission. Paul prepared himself. <clears throat> he wrote to Timothy. Preach the word, Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. And in Colossians, he wrote, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Paul was always preparing himself, and he was prepared for mission. In verse 16 of Acts 17, then we read, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. When Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive, and as he was looking around, we get the impression that Paul said, man, I can no longer wait. I've got to get active here. Uh, I'm prepared to share the good news. And so he went and he did so, and he spoke to anyone who would listen to him. He went to the religious center of the synagogue and talked to the, the, the Jews there. But then he also talked to the commoners in the marketplace. And then he was approached by these philosophers and eventually taken to their Areopagus, which would have been their um, just their temple for conversing and debating. You might be thinking, how can I be a dispenser of hope? How can I give hope when I'm sequestered and quarantined at home? How can I do that? Well, think of yourself as you would a seed. We are seeds. And seeds are quarantined in the ground. They're separated. They are isolated. They're invisible to the world. They're seemingly uh, non-productive, but they aren't. They're very active 
underground and they're growing they're growing their roots down deeper and deeper and they're sprouting out little fingers that will eventually push through the ground and eventually grow into whatever it's growing into a flower or a bush or a tree and it will become useful and beneficial and fruitful to produce shade and food and oxygen so we're like seeds right now as we're quarantined we are still actively growing or we're able to actively grow if we choose to do so. I think Jesus is deepening our roots and preparing us, his church and his children for something really, really special. It feels discouraging, but God is at work and we're growing, we're being prepared. I don't want us to return back to normal. I want us to return to, to better I think God has something better for his church. He's refining us. He's stretching us. He's growing us. And we will be better because of what God is doing in us. God works all things out for the good for those who love the Lord. Even quarantines, even um, these world pandemics, God is working all things out for the good for his church and for the world. Well, Paul could have focused on, he could have stressed out about all of the corruption and idolatry and sin that he saw all around him. But instead, he refocused on the Lord, on Christ, on his mission for him. And so that's the second thing that get, uh, made him a great hope giver and how we could be effective hope givers as well. We need to refocus daily our minds back on Christ. The culture in Athens had so much to discourage and distract them from the truth. In verse 18, we read that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Now, these Epicureans would have been those who would have pursued feeling. Feeling was the high value for them. Uh, they would have pursued comfortable living and pleasure, pain-free living. Yet they believed in their pantheon of gods, but they didn't believe that those gods had anything to do with them, and so they pursued what they could get out of life. They went for the gusto. And I'm reminded of like John Belushi, Jim Candy, or Chris Farley, these Saturday Night Live characters who went, they went for the gusto. They just wanted the most that they could get out of life, but they fell short. Epicureans. And then there were the Stoics on the other side of the spectrum. These Stoics would pursue knowledge and logic and rationalism, and they had a high view of respecting one another. And I think of Mr. Spock on Star Trek. Both of these worldviews were absent of God, and they placed self on the throne. It was self-serving, self-reliant. No need for God. I'm going to get the most out of life that I can. And so Paul addressed them in verse 18. When they asked, some asked, What is this babbler trying to say, Paul, the babbler? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We'd like to know what they mean. 
All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, if these intellects believed that Paul was crazy, if he was confusing, if his ideas were strange, then why in the world would they invite him to their lecture halls, to their debate centers? Well, simply because they loved to debate new ideas. And don't we as well? We love new ideas. Did you hear that new shop opened in town? Did you see the new pants that came out? Did, did you hear about uh, the news report? In fact, we're addicted to the 24-7 news reports, always playing. We're addicted maybe to newspapers or looking at news on social media, the Internet news. And if we were of the stoic mindset, then we would turn to CNN and, and Fox and MSNBC, PBS NewsHour, Face the Nation, or 60 Minutes. If we're more of the Epicurean mindset, we would turn for the news to Facebook or to TMZ or to the talk shows or to Entertainment Tonight, or maybe we'd turn to the joy of ESPN News. Well, we can get sucked into all kinds of hectic hopelessness if we fixate on all of the bad news that these shows are propagating every day. I mean, I don't know about you, but the more I watch the news stations, the network news or the um, cable news, I just get so discouraged. I don't know what to believe. I hear reports on this end and this end. I just don't know what to believe. We get sucked into this. And we can have attitudes, man, this pandemic is never going to end. We're hopeless. When can I ever take off my masks? Or this world is so unfair. I, I can't believe we're getting whatever. You know, we just get so discouraged by the news. And rather than get sucked into these 24 news cycles, I think we need to refocus our minds on Christ and on his word. Because this truth is unchanging. And this is where God meets us. He promises to meet us there every time we open it up prayerfully, ask him to reveal himself. And we hear the truth, and we understand anew that God is sitting on the throne. Regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of how many idols are all around us, God is still in control, and that encourages my heart deeply. But I need to turn to the source of truth for this. Hope givers refocus their minds on Christ. Philippians 4, 8, Paul said, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure and lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world with all of its lies and, and distortions. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we are renewed in our mind when we press into God's word and when we listen to him. I love these quotes. It says, what consumes our mind controls our life. Or the quality of our lives will never exceed the quality of our thoughts. What are you fixating on? What truths are you listening to for hope, for courage, for strength? I would suggest that we need to return to God's word. 
daily. We need to dive into it. We need to listen to the still small voice of his spirit. Paul began his mission in Athens with his mind focused on Christ. And he offered to them the good news of hope. He was a hope giver. So hope givers prepare themselves for mission. Hope givers fix their minds on Christ and on his word. And thirdly, hope givers share the good news with others, but they do so strategically. And this is the bulk of the rest of the message. Um, five, five little bullet points under sharing the good news strategically. How can we prepare ourselves to be hope givers and share the good news to the hopeless world strategically? Well, we can look at Paul, what he did, and we can learn from him. First, we need to appeal to people's interests or their history. Paul was greatly disturbed when he entered into Athens because of all the idols all around him, but he didn't convey his disappointment or disapproval to the people. Rather, he used their history to bridge in to the gospel. He appealed to their history. And their history was this. 600 years prior to Paul's arrival in Greece, they had experienced a pandemic in the land. And so what they did was they turned to their gods and they would sacrifice animals to their gods. And so this one man, Epitomes, he got this idea to release all of the sheep all around the city of Athens. And wherever they laid down, they would sacrifice that sheep to the shrine, God of the shrine nearest and closest to the sheep. And so they did this all around the city. But occasionally, a sheep would wander off and lie down in a place where there were no shrines to false gods or idols. And so then they would sacrifice this sheep to the unknown God. And thus they built an altar to the unknown God in Athens. Paul used this history to transition them into spiritual truths about the one true God. He said in verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus to these philosophers and thinkers, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription on it, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship? And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you now. And then he transitioned to the one true God. And then he also used their poets, their well-known poets. For in him, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul then transitioned to spiritual things. Let me tell you about the one true God that can be known. He's not unknown. You can know him. Now, how does this work today? Well, say you're, I'm walking in the park, or I, I go to Burger King. <laughs> so I walk into Burger King, and there's a gentleman sitting there all by himself, eating alone. We establish eye contact, and we say our um, hellos. And so I get this impression that this man is available to talk. So I sit down next to this man. I begin engage in conversation with him. How do I utilize his interests? How do I appeal to his history to bridge the conversation? Well, I simply begin by asking questions like, hey, are you from here? 
How long have you lived in McPherson? Great. Oh, well, all your life? Well, hey, what was your first car? What was your first job? How has the city changed over the years? How fast has life gone? Are you ready for the next life? And so in the course of conversation, I transition to historical interests to a question about spiritual things. And so we can do this if we're strategic and if we're prayerful, God will lead us in our conversations. Appeal to their interests. Secondly, Paul said, I want to appeal to the one true creator in verse 23. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself live, um, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. In other words, Paul said, this God is not an impersonal, unmoved mover. Rather, he's a personal God. He wants to know you. He wants to be known by you. In verse 27, he said, God did this so that he would seek, so that you would, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any of us, God wants to be found. He reveals himself to us. There's one God. He created us. He reigns over the universe, and he created you as well, which leads me to the third uh, point of sharing the good news. Appeal to one's need for purpose. We all need purpose. No one of us wants to be forgotten after we leave this earth. We want to be noticed. We want to matter. We want to have meaning and purpose. And so appeal to the need for purpose in verse 26. Paul says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, he said, You're alive because God has appointed you to be alive right now in the place where you are right now for his specific purposes. John Tyler was born 230 years ago in 1790. He was born uh, when George Washington was leading as our first president. But then John Tyler became our 10th president in 1841, our 10th president. Two of his sons today, right now, are living. I'm sorry, two of his grandsons are living right now. And you might be thinking, how could this be possible in the 21st century? Well, everything had to line up just so. In the 1800s, it wouldn't have been uncommon for widowers to marry a second time and marry a woman who was 30, 35, uh, five years his junior. And so this is exactly what President Tyler did. After his first wife died, he married another woman 35 years younger. The first wife, well, together he had 15 children, eight with his first wife and seven with his second wife. Now, um, when one of these children uh, was living, then he too got married and he had eight children of his own. He had few with his first wife, 
and a few with his second wife. When his first wife died, then he married the second wife 30 years his junior, younger. And so to them were born these two kids, and these two kids are living today. 1920s they were born, Lion Tyler Jr. and Harrison Tyler. The grandsons of our 10th president are still alive and kicking today, at least as of two weeks ago. Again, for this to happen, the dominoes would have had to fall in just so. But the same is equally true for us. Our great-grandparents, our great-grandparents had to make it out of childhood alive, which was no small feat 100 years ago. And then our grandparents would have had to meet, fall in love, and marry. They would have had to survive the flu pandemic of 1918, the polio scourge, the Great Depression, and one of the American World Wars. Against all odds, we had to win the most important competitive event in our lives, namely, half of our genetic material outraced at least 10 million other sperm. Our mothers had to decide to bring us in the world, to raise us, to nurture us, to set us free, and because of that, we are here right now, not by accident, not by coincidence. As God tells us in Psalm 139, all the days ordained for you have been written in my book before one of them came to be. In Jeremiah, he says, for I know the plans I have for you. You're not alive by accident. God in his foreknowledge has planned us to be alive and born, born and alive at this very moment during this world pandemic for his specific purposes. We could have been born in the 10th century. We could have never been born but in his foreknowledge, he created us, and he chose us to be born for his purposes. You have a purpose. I have a purpose. And God has a special purpose for each one of us. Paul appealed to their purpose. And then fourthly, Paul appealed to their guilty consciences. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul pointed out the folly of their idolatry. And then he pointed out, hey, and you broke the first two of God's holy commandments. Namely, in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before the one true God, and you shall not make for yourself an image or idol in the form of anything. <clears throat> This would have pricked their conscience. Romans 2 tells us, Paul writes, the requirements of the law are written on our hearts, and our consciences also bear witness. And our thoughts sometimes accuse us, sometimes condemns us, sometimes defends us. The law of God reveals that we need a Savior. Why would anyone respond positively to this confrontation by Paul? that you're a sinner, you have a sin of idolatry. Well, until we realize that we're in trouble, that we've fallen short, that, we, that we've hit the wall, that we have nowhere to turn, until we realize that, we won't seek a Savior. We won't seek help from anyone else. We will be self-sufficient. And so we need the law to bring us to repentance. And this is how Paul used the law. In verse 30, we're told, 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And repentance is turning away from your sin and idolatry and turning to God, the one true God, for his provision of salvation. And this salvation was the good news that Paul preached about Jesus and his resurrection in verse 18. Do we see our need for repentance as, even as Christians, as believers in Christ? You know, judgment begins with the house of God. What might God be wanting us to learn during this pandemic? How might he want to discipline us or purify us or shape us or prepare us to be hope givers to the world? Second Chronicles 7, God tells, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, which is repentance, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Do we want healing in our land, in our world, in our country? It begins with the house of God. It begins with us turning from our wicked ways, repenting. And then finally, Paul appealed to their sense of justice in verse 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, Jesus Christ. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, judgment is not a popular topic these days, but we all have an innate desire for justice. We want the bad guy to get caught. That's why we watch cops on TV or why we watch Judge Judy or those murder mysteries on 2020. We want the bad people to get caught and justice to be served. It's innate within us. If we present judgment in and of itself, it will seem offensive. And so we shouldn't do that. We should couple it with grace. Like these two along the side of the road right before a bend it was a priest and it was a pastor and they were holding two signs up like this to the cars passing by one of the signs read the end is near and the other sign read turn around before it's too late and as cars came by they looked at the pastor and priest and they rolled down their windows and shouted obscenities to them and and pointed at them with various fingers and uh, they just stepped on the gas and sped up ahead Finally, the pastor and the priest, they looked at each other and said, do you suppose we ought to change our signs to bridge out ahead? It was a warning because they cared. And we're given this gospel message as a, to give them as good news from something that we can escape. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve punishment because we've all fallen short because of our sin and our idolatry. We've all fallen short. None of us deserve anything but judgment. But Jesus came to say, I will take your judgment. You do not need to pay your judgment. I will pay it for you on the cross. And he did. And that's the good news. Connected to the judgment is the message of grace. We need to know we need a Savior before we will turn and receive that grace of Jesus Christ. We need to know that there's bad news before we're ready for good news. 
And we are entrusted with this message, but we must present it with gentleness and with respect. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Paul was not interested in scaring people into heaven with a message of judgment, but he longed to share the gift of the one who came to save them from this judgment of death and condemnation. And some accepted it, and some rejected it, even as they do today. We read in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, as, as first experienced by Jesus Christ, some of them sneered at Paul, while others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. It aroused their curiosity. Verse 33, at that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them were Dionysius, member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul was an effective hope giver. And we're called to be hope givers as well. How can we be effective? We need to prepare ourselves. We need to deepen our roots and be, that we might become more fruitful because God is working all things out for the good, even this pandemic. For those who love the Lord, he is shaping us during this time. He's not wasting this time for his church. He's preparing us to be effective. Secondly, we need to refocus our mind on Christ and focus on what is good and, and acceptable and, and joyful. And then thirdly, we need to share the good news strategically by appealing to others, their history, their interests, their creator, their need for purpose. We need to prick their conscience with this message of guilt but then we also need to present this sense of justice coupled with grace i'm not expecting that you'll remember this but i am expecting and hoping and praying that if you haven't been in a discipleship group where we, you learn to share your faith that you'll do so in the near future as the church has to focus on small groups of people small churches gathered together as one church we need to do that like the New Testament church if we're going to be effective rather than just come on Sunday morning and not know anybody. Uh, and so this is my prayer for each one of us that we deepen our roots and that we prepare during this time to be effective hope givers to a hopeless world. And so Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who gave me the courtesy to listen today and who uh, open up their hearts and minds to the living and the written and the spoken word of the living God. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you continue to shape us and that you deepen us and you prepare us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.